Hi everyone, Mike here. Today's guest, Sandy Powell, is a verifiable film legend. You'll hear this in my intro, but she's our most decorated guest ever with 15 Oscar nominations, three wins and a few BAFTAs in there to boot. Unbelievable. In the episode, topics we cover are Sandy's journey into the business and her costume design process, advice for whether you should be cold calling to get jobs, advice for directors on working with costume, what it's like managing actors in the fitting room, and specifically, does Daniel Day-Lewis stay in character the whole time? The story of Jonah Hill's famous appendage in The Wolf of Wall Street, as well as a bit of chat on Margot Robbie's entrance dress and what it was like for her to do her own version of Cinderella and Mary Poppins. We fit an awful lot into half an hour and it was an absolute pleasure. That's all from me. Here's the episode. I quite often pinch myself, for instance, on the Irishman, thinking, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm here with, you know, De Niro and Pacino and, you know, Harvey Keitel and Joe Pesci. It was all like, oh my God, this is incredible. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a screenwriter and production team member working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film and TV professionals to help educate and empower the next generation of filmmakers and crew. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today, I am lucky to be joined by one of the world's most influential costume designers. Starting her career on celebrated art house films such as Derek Jarman's Caravaggio, she has since worked her way through the business, designing the iconic looks of Cinderella, Mary Poppins Returns, and Shakespeare in Love, as well as forging a lasting relationship with Martin Scorsese, with whom she collaborated to design The Wolf of Wall Street, Gangs of New York, and many more. Along the way, she has picked up the small sum of 15 Oscar nominations, winning three, so I can't quite believe she's sitting down with me. Please welcome to the show, the one and only Sandy Powell. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, Sandy, I like to ask all of my guests the same first question, and that is, what did your parents do and did it affect your career choices moving forward? Hmm. My father worked in casinos all his life, the croupier originally, and then um, later on he was um, a manager in casinos in Soho, London. So I was kind of, as a, as a kid and as a teenager, I was uh, brought up, you know, trawling around the streets of Soho, <laughs> visiting him at work, actually. Um, and my mother did secretarial work all her life. So neither parent came from the arts world, um, yet I was always encouraged. My mother actually, even though she'll deny it now, is actually artistic. I mean, she taught me to sew and she, she did things like that. And I think had she had a different start in life, she could well have been doing something you know, creative. She could have uh, a different career. I believe we share something in that we both went to schools where they pushed quite traditionally academic disciplines. Yeah. And did you feel as if you were going against the grain slightly when you started to develop your dreams of moving to the creative was, fields? I always was creative. I mean, even, you know, from a very young child, I was always drawing pictures and making clothes and, and making things and doing that. So that was that was something that I always enjoyed and I did. And I don't think I even thought about it being a job. And then, as you say, I, I did go to an, an academic school and I enjoyed that side of it as well I was actually doing a lot of science and there was there was a time when I was going to go into sciences and even considered being a doctor but I did art at the same time and then something happened in the last in the last in sixth form in the last year I thought no I want to do art I want to do art you know so I just kind of switched but art really was for the people who weren't very good at anything else or you know if you're trying to bunk off sport <laughs> so I didn't feel like I was going against the grain particularly um, because they, I did have an encouraging art teacher 
um, who did encourage me to, to apply for art school. So that's what I did. I kind of didn't do it though until sort of late teens. When you were making those things, were you making stuff in more of a sartorial manner or was it in a wider sort of artistic thing? Were you painting? What was your style? Both. I mean, I was drawing clothes and making my own fashion magazines at a very young age and also making dolls clothes at a very young age. And so that always interested me. But I was also interested in painting and drawing, just making things. I was just, I think I was more of an indoor making things sort of person than an outdoor climbing trees. Would you be able to talk about how you made your decisions then with education? Because am I right that you had art foundation, but also theatre design at some point? Yeah, I did foundation. And I, and I did foundation at St. Martin's, what was just St. Martin's at the time, that, that had, you know, the really famous fashion department. And I, I knew people in that department. I was always really interested in fashion. But for some reason, I, and when, I went into, when I went into the foundation, course, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Although I had, by that time, seen somebody in the theatre who really made me interested in, in the theatre, and that was Lindsay Kemp. I saw him at the Roundhouse when I was about 16. So I was interested in that side of things. And then I, I kind of, there was a point where I could have got into fashion, but then theatre sort of was, seemed to me to be more interesting and, um, you know, more, fle- there was more flexible, there were more things to do. It wasn't just about doing clothes. It was about being part of a production that I was interested in. And again, there I had a tutor encourage to apply for theatre design. So I did apply for theatre design and did um, part of a theatre design course at Central School of Art until I left at the end of my second year. And you must have been pretty fierce at chasing your dream at that point because am I right that you procured Derek Jarman's phone number or did that come later well that was that was before that I went to work with Lindsay Kemp who I had seen on stage at age 16 and then I met him and um left college in order to go and work with him so I I did do theatre for a few years before film and over the years I have done little bits of theatre I didn't I didn't give it up I did theatre for 25 years I designed for the same dance company for 25 years until fairly recently was it with Lindsay when you went off to Milan that young? That must have been quite nerve-wracking. That's true. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, that was my first ever. My first ever job was going to Milan <laughs> to design a, a play. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was just that sort of thing. I just you know, did it. What did your casino uh, working father think when you said, right, this is my first job. I'm off to Milan, Dad. Off we go. I think, well, my parents initially were upset that I wasn't going back to college. I mean, what I did was at the end of my second year, I said, I'm taking a sabbatical. I'm having a year off. So it wasn't that worrying for that first year. And I don't think they minded me going off to work in that year. I mean, it was exciting. It was when I decided at the end of that year not to go back to college. There was a little bit of resistance. I mean, not a great deal. I mean, you know, they let me do what I wanted to do and what I thought was best. And I said, I, I didn't want to go back to college. And of course, they were both people who came from backgrounds where they didn't have further education. And They'd worked all their lives to help myself and my sister have a have a further education. I think at the time it was difficult for them to think that I wasn't going to get a degree, and I think they actually thought that that would, you know, that would be detrimental to my career and life, and that I wouldn't get proper jobs. But I proved that I proved them wrong there. I think you've uh, you certainly proved them <laughs> very wrong there, Sandy. Um, to take you back to that um, procuring Derek's number, one question I do have to you is: um, as a costume designer, head of department. Where do you, you know, where does your opinion land on how kind of quote unquote pushy people should be to try and get jobs with someone like yourself? Because obviously there you were, you were going for it. It was through friends, but procuring a number and just ringing someone up, maybe that was more yeah. common then. But, you, you know, a young costume designer wouldn't want to annoy you, but at the same time, they want to show they're keen. It's a difficult balance. 
I know. It's very, very difficult because, of course, I would say, oh, you know, just go go straight in there and, you know, try and talk to somebody or try and get their number or go try and get in touch. I mean, it's what I did, but it kind of was different back then because you couldn't be inundated by emails or texts or phone calls and people didn't phone. And it was that you phoned somebody and you hoped that they were in at home. <laughs> I mean, at the time I did it, I don't think there were even answer machines. Do you know what I mean? So it was sort of like you're either there or you weren't. So it would take quite a few phone calls to get somebody in. I would say, yeah, I mean, but having said that, I mean, I don't think, I think phoning, no, that's not a done, I don't think that's a good thing to do, to phone on somebody's personal phone. But you can make contact through agents. You can make contact by writing or direct messaging. Through, I mean, I get tons of messages through Instagram, things like that. Of course, you can't reply to all of them. And you, you do, yeah, you do try. And then hopefully one day you'll be lucky and somebody will reply. I mean, as I say, I do get lots of requests and lots of things. And I reply to those that I can and some I don't. And then sometimes somebody just stands out for whatever reason. And that's the person that's lucky enough to sort of be around when the moment you're looking for somebody is what happens. I mean, all the people that I've taken on, all the younger people that I've taken on have just happened to be in the right place at the right time. As when you're doing a job or as when you're looking for a person to fill a job, you know, because obviously... We all come with a team of people. I have a regular team of assistants, experienced assistants. And on every job, you take a handful of younger people who come fresh out of college or just been in the business or just been working for a couple of years and you take those on. But there's a limit to how many people you can have. I think that's a very fair answer. And I do think the industry has changed a bit. I actually spoke to um, a colleague of yours, Erin Banak, who's another costume designer who oh, yeah. you may know. And she, she, like yourself, she kind of started as a costume designer, if that makes sense, which isn't necessarily how it goes anymore. I know you kind of did that on Caravaggio. Could you talk about that trial of by fire a little bit, just going straight in? Well, I mean, I went straight in in the theatre with Lindsay. And on film, I, I, never, I never assisted anybody. I didn't assist anybody in the theatre or in film. I just had to go straight in. And I don't know, I think it was just sort of like the arrogance of youth. I mean, you, you kind of go in and I didn't think about it. That's what I wanted to do. I was going to give it a go. And I said yes to things I didn't, you know, I couldn't do probably. Um, and it was, as you say, trial by fire. You sort of learn. But I was lucky in that both Lindsay Kemp and Derek Jarman were happy to teach. They kind of obviously knew they weren't stupid. They obviously knew they were taking a risk and taking on somebody totally green, um, but, were, but were really generous with their, their knowledge and information and help. But then they saw something in you, of course, which was why they bothered, I imagine. I guess they must have done. And I think that's what happens. And, I, and, and now, now I'm in that kind of position myself <laughs> of the older, wiser person. Um, and... You know what, you, you can take on a handful of trainees at the beginning of a job and the ones that are going to be good or make it stand out quite early on. There's a business term about hiring very good people and it's, um, I know how to get good people, I just hire them yeah. because they come in and straight away you can tell. So, you know, clearly it works yeah. in costume design as yeah. well. Are there any lessons that you took from those early years on some of those smaller India films, you know, some of Derek's stuff that you've taken with you onto your current level of job, you know, going on to Disney now? Are there things that you learned from those early trial by fire days that are something you never really forgot? Probably everything, everything, I, everything, everything I know now. I, I, I started to learn then and there might be things I didn't realise I was learning. But yeah, of course, you sort of, hmm. I mean, what was good about starting off on smaller, low budget things is that you learn to be resourceful hmm. and not wasteful and make the best of what you have you know with limited resources you make the best of what you have and I think you can always make something fantastic out of whatever you have and and I enjoy the challenge of that and sometimes and I don't like saying this too much sometimes it's better to have 
a low budget than a high budget. If you've got limitless funds, it's kind of harder to to finalize something or make a final decision because you think there's always something better. You could always be better. There's always something more you can do because you can afford that luxury. Whereas if you are on a lower budget, you have to really, really think creatively about how to make it work. Having said that, it doesn't mean to say that I want to do low budgets the whole time because they're really, really hard. I mean, they're just hard physically quite a lot of the time because you have to work much longer hours and you don't have enough time. And, you know, a bigger budget is is nice in lots of ways. It doesn't make it any easier necessarily because a bigger budget film usually comes with a much bigger film with, you know, lots more to actually achieve in the time. So I won't tell your producers to reduce your budget, Sandy. No, I mean, I, don't, I always say this now. I always say, I know, I hope no producers are listening to this. <laughs> I, do, I like to keep a balance. I do both. I really do enjoy doing the low budget, smaller films, because quite often you're working with new and interesting younger people. And also the projects usually, the, on the low budget ones, the projects usually are the most interesting because they're, they're, they're the ones that are more likely to be taking risks. And the bigger budget ones are generally safer. And that's still working with Martin Scorsese, who's one of the one of the, the few big budget directors who take risks, who is still into sort of trying out something new. And I really respect that. Well, he's making sort of high budget art movies, isn't he? He's one of the few. Exactly. That's what it's always been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big budget independent films, yeah. There's not many Scorsese's though. So. No. Um, as a bit of a gear shift, one of the questions I did want to ask you that I noticed in some previous interviews is you mentioned the change in the relationship when a director can draw. Could you talk about how that works? Because you get different directors that are so different. Some are more from the writing school, some are more of an image maker. Yeah. How does that affect you and your job? Well, of course, if a director can express themselves visually, it's really helpful. Um, now that might be, I mean, drawing, or but it also means understanding, looking at things. It means being able to produce a visual representation of what's going on in their head reference points look books i mean um if they under and if they understand the visuals that i'm showing to them it's a lot easier and as you say all directors are different there'll be some directors coming from a writing point of view and who very much enjoy working with the actors more than anything else and leave the visuals to the production designer and the costume designer and the cinematographer but um it's much easier with a director who's got a visual sense, a sort of clear visual sense, or is an artist or a painter or a designer themselves. I mean, Derek Jarman was a painter and a theatre designer. Lindsay Kemp was a theatre designer and a painter. Um, Todd Haynes is, is an artist. I mean, I mean, they're, they're, I mean I'm mean, i not going to list all the, all the directors I've ever worked with them and what their, <laughs> their talents are, but um, they're all different. They all have different strengths. But I do enjoy working with directors who come, who have come from the visual arts. Amazing. Uh, speaking of script there, when I worked for a production designer, she always said to me, she reads the script and she's designed it in her head basically in one go, that the big moments she thinks of straight away. Is yours that kind of electric connection or does it come around more organically? I know there's obviously collaboration along the way, but how does your process work in that regard? No, it doesn't. I mean, I read the script and I get a feeling. I get a, I get a, a, a feeling of atmosphere. Um, and that might be for the film as a whole. That might be for the production design. It might be for how it looks. But then that, I'm, but I realise that that's I'm thinking of it as if I was directing it. I'm not directing it. But it's good to have an idea of, of how I think. The, the, but I try to I try to not pin too much on that until I've spoken with the director and heard what their idea is and what their vision is, because that's ultimately that that is what you're doing. You're you're working for them. But in terms of <coughs> characters and in terms of 
my job and costume, I don't have an image of the costume unless that is I know who the actor is. If I read a script and I know who's attached to it, that's different because you can start imagining the character and there might be time on that first read. If I know when I'm reading that character, I know who the actor is, then I might have an idea. If I have no idea who the actor is, then I don't let myself go down that road because so much depends on who the actor is, what they look like, how tall they are, what colour they are, you know, everything. I mean, their physicality, their personality depends on that. So I won't allow myself to have an idea about what they were because it, it, I'd have to sort of try and get rid of that once I met the actor, if, it, if they're completely physically not what's in my head or not even what's quite often somebody's physicality is described in the script. And that's just the, the writer's idea. But once it's cast, it might not be that at all. But I'll get a feeling. I'll get a feeling for the kind of thing. I might get a feeling for colour before I get a feeling or I don't know. It's, it's hard to it's hard to pin down, but it's a non-specific thing. But I get a, a feeling and there are little things in the back of my mind that then start getting stronger and clearer the more information I have. Mm. And the next step is obviously once they have been cast, they come into that hallowed hall of the, the fitting room. Yeah. Do you have much of a methodology for empathising with an actor in that situation? Because a lot of your job is, you know, kind of looking after them in that situation. A lot of them are very bothered mm-hmm. about what they're going to wear. Do you have much of a, mm-hmm. a method for dealing with that? I don't know whether there's an actual method. I don't say, right, first of all, I do this, that and the other. It's um, everybody, every single person is different. So what you have to do first up is you have to make them feel comfortable. You have to get their confidence. That's the most important thing. So however you do that. And, and, and so I guess you do have to really be a good judge of personality and be able to try and get somebody straight away, get the mood they're in straight away when they're walking mm. in that room. And you play everybody differently. You know, you treat people differently depending on how they are and what they like. I mean, there'll be some people who don't want to talk much and there'll be other people that want to talk a lot. So you have to you have to work it out. You have to work out what's best, what how you know how what you you sort of start developing a relationship. How much to impose your opinion, or how much to hold back, and let them say what they want to do, and then maybe you end up letting them believe they've had the idea that you actually have. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of that. There's a, there's a lot of you know it's a collaboration, and I want to hear as much from them, you know, about what they think and how they feel as, as, as I want to give them my ideas. So and my opinions. It's like Inception where you got to put the idea in their head. Yeah. It's really interesting. Every single person is different and that's what's quite, you know, you, and you learn a lot about people and their foibles and their neuroses and they all have them, you know, everybody does. One eccentricity I did want to ask about, and I may be way off here because I've never actually been in a casting room myself was Daniel Day-Lewis in character all the time when you were measuring him up? No, not, no, absolutely not, not, not early on. No, he only does that once he's working and on the set, you know, with the whole thing. It's the costume, hair, the makeup, on set. I mean, he was a bit like that, but he wasn't like that the entire time. I mean, you know, he didn't, he didn't throw knives at me when I went into, <laughs> you know, in for a fitting once we were shooting. Costume and thus the costume designer obviously have a lot of influence on the way a film or a TV show comes across. But I feel like a real specific example of that is in characters' entrances because it's the first time you see them, they're wearing your outfits and it's yeah. a wow moment. How do you go about thinking about those? Do you devote more time to that when you're breaking down a script? For example, something like Margot Robbie in The Wolf of Wall Street 
You know, that was kind of the first time anyone had ever seen her. It was a real big reveal that she was going to be the star of this movie. How do you think about that? Do you spend more time on it? No, I can't even remember what she's wearing in her first scene. Is it the party scene? It's the first time he historically meets her, I think. In that turquoise dress. Okay, I know what it is. It's an Hermé Leger dress. Okay. Um, going back to what you said initially was I, you have a, you know, as a costume designer, one has a lot of power in the entrance. You don't necessarily have that power. I mean, it's, it's down to you what they look like when they come in, but that doesn't necessarily give you the power to do that. I mean, I suppose you could, you could, but it's interesting. And yes, in answer to the question, somebody's entrance, somebody's first appearance, it might not be an actual entrance, is really important. Yeah, it is really important. But then sometimes it might be that you don't want to sum up everything in that first appearance. It might be that that person develops and turns into the person that you get to know. So it it totally depends on the script and what's happening. I mean, yeah, for Margot and that appearance, of course, that that, that was important. As a quick aside, which is not very deep filmmaking, Sandy, but sometimes there are questions I have to ask. Yeah. Was it your department that was in charge of Jonah's appendage in that scene? Or was that makeup? It wasn't me, else? no. It would have been it would have been a combination of props and hair and makeup, I believe, because it was a like a thing. It was a big, I'd say it was probably props that then had to it might have been props and it might have been um it might have been my department. The the person dressing him obviously had to deal with it. I don't remember. I don't think I was consulted over that actual thing. Thank you for humouring me on that one. Uh, Yeah, and I think I don't think I was even on set when that happened because I remember when I first time I saw the film, I was horrified. No, I (laughs) went to see some. It was some rushes or a cut together bit, and I remember when I was in a a screening room and Thelma was there laughing hysterically, and I was shocked. (laughs) I, I bet. Uh, you've worked on a lot of the Disney reboots now. How did you approach, do you approach, crafting costumes for such iconic characters like Cinderella and Mary Poppins, given that they already exist in the public consciousness, don't they? I guess it's almost like a period character yeah. to some extent, but it's such an iconic look and you want to cr- carve out your own niche, but yeah. also, you know, not not anger the fans and all that. I know it's, it was difficult when I... When I- first thoughts when I was doing Cinderella was oh god you know well actually more Mary Poppins than Cinderella was you know you just can't disappoint you know you really didn't want to disappoint and with Cinderella I wasn't ever told I mean no one from Disney said you've got to it's got to look like the animation and you've got to reference the animation obviously there are elements of it that I did want to pay homage to Um, and I think the only the only two things I did that was sort of close to the animation was the prince was wearing white and he did, does in the animation and that she wears blue. But I didn't I, auto, I didn't automatically think that the ball gown was going to be blue. I actually went through a whole range of other colours thinking I'm going to do something different. It didn't have to be the same thing. It turned out to be blue because that was the colour that worked the best on Lily and worked as a whole in the scenes. So I kind of did my version of the characters and knew that they could. it couldn't be a million miles away from the original. And with Mary Poppins... In a way, it was it was different because the film was set sort of, I don't know, what, 25 years later in the 1930s. Um, so I had to do the 1930s version of her at the turn of the century in the Edwardian times. Um, and it sort of came together quite naturally, actually, because the, 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 the silhouette from the, from the early 30s was, wasn't a million miles away. But it was different. Um, now I enjoyed I enjoyed that challenge of doing something that was recognisably Mary Poppins, but my take on it. That's awesome. 
Uh, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is take someone of a stature like yourself and then I ask them questions about things that they were sort of nervous about because people like me, when we were on set, I've been on a set actually that you were on and, you know, you see the HUDs, the, the grown-ups yeah. walking around being very important and it's like, wow, what's going on in that inner circle? Do they think the same things we think? And obviously you've been on so many sets now. I would uh, One example I would use is, you know, having to sit down with De Niro, Pesci, Pacino, et cetera. Do you ever find it daunting? Do you ever have any moments of being like, bloody hell, what, what am I doing here, Sandy? This is a lot. Do you know what? I think there's something about being old now. <laughs> it's not to say I take it for granted. I quite often pinch myself, for instance, on the Irishman thinking, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm here with, you know, De Niro and Pacino and you know, Harvey Keitel and Joe Pesci. It was sort of like, oh my God, this is incredible. But... I mean, I probably was a little bit nervous about meeting Robert De Niro, you know, a bit, but not to the extent that it was like, oh, God, I'm terrified. I don't know what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say. I kind of I think the nice thing, OK, one of the nice things about being older is that you actually do have more, right, you know, have more confidence than you do. And quite often I'm the oldest person on a set now anyway. Never. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was young on the Irishman. <laughs> no, but often, no, often I'm the oldest on the set now. And I think, well, you know what? I've been around long enough. Um, but that's not to say that I'm complacent and it's not to say that I don't get nervous on a job. I mean, at the beginning of every job, I kind of think, what if I don't have any ideas? What if I can't solve this problem? Um, there's one bit of me that thinks, what if I don't have any ideas? I'm not going to have any ideas. There's another bit of me that knows that I will have that I know that I'm not going to send somebody onto the set in their underwear because I couldn't think of anything, you know. There's, it's it's always going to get resolved. And it always comes, even if it's at the last minute, the idea or the, the solution to the problem will always come. So there's always that, you know, that dialogue. Like, I haven't got any ideas. Yes, you will have some ideas. That's the more, that's, that's more the daunting prospect. That's more daunting than who I'm going to meet. I love that answer. That was absolutely fantastic. Uh, speaking of... Um, you know, the blank page, I guess, for the writer and for yourself. What does that literally look like to you in the sense that, you know, you're worrying about your ideas, are you going to have any? Are you working on Photoshop? Are you drawing by hand? What is your literal design process? I don't do anything on Photoshop. And I don't work with illustrators that use those sort of computerized drawings. And I don't actually draw. I mean, I... Um, I, I can draw and I do draw because you've probably everyone's seen costume sketches I've done, but I do all those at the end. Oh. <laughs> I do those when the costumes are made. I know what they look like. So it's never a case of me doing a beautiful drawing of somebody in a costume, then going out and finding the fabric that matches the color in the drawing and then making the cut because it's more organic than that. It grows. I actually, I actually start, I actually work with the people making the costumes. If they're, if they're, it's something that we're making and we're not finding and start building in 3D very early on, as soon as I have an idea. I have reference images. I have, you know, I make lookbooks and mood boards and, and things like that, visual images and inspiration and research, and use that. And I, and I get the idea in my head, and I just have to work with people that I know to get it out in 3D and then onto a body as, as soon as possible, onto an actor, and then work from that and then build on that. So in terms of communicating that with the director, that, that is sometimes difficult. And I, I'm sort of now to say, look, trust me, it'll be fine. I'll show you the pictures as soon as we've got something to look at. And quite often it's easier for a director to see the actual clothes than to look at a drawing. You can never make a drawing look like it's going to look. 
in real life. Because Vogue would have it that you're sitting there at some sort of easel, you know, painting away. Never. And no, then right minions not. going off to do it. One, two, one plus one. But some people, some people do. Some designers work like that. Some de- I know some designers do work everything out on paper first and that's how they work. I mean, I'll do a sketch. I'll do a little drawing. If I'm trying to work out a proportion of something or try in my own head, trying to, you know, should it be this or this? Then I'll do drawings myself, but it's not anything that I would show to anybody else or it's not anything anybody else would understand. Now, to wrap it up, Sandy, I like to do a quick fire in, in my own style, a little bit like in the actor's studio, which I'm sure you've seen many times before. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so if you think of whatever comes into your head uh, straight away All right. and go with it. So, uh, so number one is what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? To go to work every day with the same kind of excitement as if you were going to a party that you really wanted to go to. Fantastic. Number two, do you have a favorite film? Don't look now. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for an early call time, if any at all? Because I enjoy my job. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? There's a few I'd like to do. I'd like to have the confidence to direct. I know I could produce. Commode mentioned that, didn't he? Oh, really? To you in an interview, he said you should direct. Do you remember? I think he said you should direct, yeah, yeah. Have you had any thoughts on it since? No. (laughs) Well, I kind of think it is said to me. I'd love, but I'm actually fascinated by editing, but I don't think I would have the patience to do it. Mm, I'll tell you what, that's the number one thing that everybody says. I would be an editor. Yeah, I I think it's incredible. I think editors are incredible. And, you know, the fact that you could completely change a story, completely change the meaning of something. I think they have a lot of creative, not control, because they're not on the set and there's not as many people around. They have a lot of sway given the point in the production. Yeah, yeah. And I, I I think it's absolutely fascinating. Number five, this is a really hard one, sorry. If you could work with one person, living or dead, who would it be? Oh, that I haven't already worked with. (laughs) (laughs) Worked with most of them. (laughs) Fellini. (laughs) Awesome. Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? Any book. Oh, that's a difficult one. No, I can't can't answer that one, actually. It's been too many. That's all right. And the last one, I normally ask, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? But (laughs) if you can remember during many of your Oscars, who did you thank and why? I thank mostly the most important people are the ones who all the other people in my department who, you know, worked on the project because you there's no you can't do it on your own. It's not about you. It's about all the people working with you. Beautiful. Thank you, Sandy Powell. A whirlwind of creative advice and stories on our most decorated guest ever. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies or on Twitter at rcrookiespod. I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at Mike F Battle on Twitter. So please do come and say hi. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.